Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, and welcome to Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. And I'm Naz Mudirzadeh. Today, we're going to talk about Iran's elections and what they mean for the nuclear talks with the United States. Iranians go to the polls on Friday this week to elect a new president. Elections under the Islamic Republic are never free and fair, but they have often been competitive. This time around, though, the frontrunner, Ebrahim Raisi, faces no serious rivals. The Guardian Council, which is closely aligned with Iran's supreme leader Ali Khamenei and Vets presidential candidates, disqualified all other serious contenders. Raisi is currently head of Iran's judiciary. He's known as a hardliner on reform in Iran, on Iran's role in the region, and on relations with the West. Iran held its third and final presidential debate on Saturday. The country's leading hardline presidential candidate, Ibrahim Raisi, voiced support for the 2015 nuclear accord during the televised event. Speaking at the debate... Iran's nuclear program is galloping forward. That is a a concrete problem. We have an interest in putting that nuclear problem back in the box because an Iran with a nuclear weapon or with the ability to produce fissile material on very short notice to get one is an Iran that's going to be an even worse actor. That was U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. As Iranians vote this week, U.S. and Iranian diplomats are negotiating in Vienna. Both Iran and U.S. President Joe Biden have said they want to get back to the nuclear deal, or the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that the two countries signed in 2015. President Trump, Biden's predecessor, pulled the U.S. out of that agreement. But the two sides still disagree on what steps they each need to take to get back to compliance. Iran by reversing its nuclear development, and the US by lifting sanctions that the Trump administration imposed as part of what it called a maximum pressure strategy against Iran. Beyond the nuclear talks, there's a lot else going on that a new Iranian president is going to have to grapple with, especially questions of Iran's role in the Middle East, whether it can calm its long-running rivalry across the region with Saudi Arabia. Recently, Saudi and Iranian officials met in the Iraqi capital, Baghdad, in a move that might suggest some hope of reconciliation. 
Today we're going to talk to Ali Vyas, Crisis Group's Iran director, about the elections, about the nuclear talks, and about Iran's role in the Middle East. Ali's been closely tracking, and in the past he's sometimes even been directly involved in negotiations over Iran's nuclear program. Ali, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Let's start with the elections. Can you tell us a bit about the recent Guardian Council disqualifications, which seem to undermine arguments for the legitimacy of Iran's presidential elections? No, these disqualifications really shocked uh, both the political elite in, in Tehran and also uh, the Iranian people because Guardian Council really went further than usual in tightening the circle of insiders. It used to uh, allow loyal critics uh, of the Islamic Republic to compete, uh, but this time around, it even disqualified tested loyalists to the political system, uh, including Ali Larjani, who is the longest serving Speaker of Parliament uh, and is currently an advisor to the Supreme Leader and is the man who negotiated recently a strategic uh, agreement between Iran and China. And interestingly, his brother is actually a member of the Guardian Council and went on to criticize uh, the Guardian Council's decision. They also disqualified the current sitting vice president, Eshaq Jahangiri, who's just a heartbeat away from the presidency and has been in the past eight years. And, and this really seems to have set the stage for the victory of Ibrahim Raisi. Uh, the survey showed, even from the day that vetting results came out, that the distance between Ibrahim Raisi and uh, his other contenders is just simply unbridgeable. He seems set to become uh, the eighth president of the Islamic Republic. And Ali, what do you think has motivated the Supreme Leader, the Guardian Council, to take such a tough line on narrowing the field and, in essence, ensuring a, a Raisi win? Uh, there are two possible explanations. One is that the system has realized that it's dealing with really serious economic, sociopolitical and foreign policy challenges. And in order to deal with them effectively, it needs to have all levers of power controlled by the same faction. Otherwise, the infighting would create the kind of paralysis that has existed in the past eight years and uh, basically uh, reduces the government's ability to govern effectively. The other explanation is that this election is more than just selecting the next president, but it's about succession. Uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, the current Supreme Leader, is 82 years old. His succession is looming large on the horizon. And so many people feel that uh, Ibrahim Raisi is being groomed to become uh, the next Supreme Leader. Uh, but this makes little sense from the Supreme Leader's perspective because he's probably doing this to protect his own strategic vision for the future of the Islamic Republic and to protect his family who are currently involved in his office. You know, the Supreme Leader, when he came to office in 1989, uh, he moved to uh, not only adopt his own vision for the future of the Islamic Republic, but also moved to marginalize the kingmakers uh, at the time where the Khomeini family uh, and the Rafsanjani family ended up actually sending some of their sons uh, and daughters to prison. And, and so I, I doubt that that's as simple of a calculation on the, on the side of the supreme leader. My own view is and this is obviously uh, speculation because none of us uh, is sitting in the Supreme Leader's office. But what makes sense uh, in terms of the price that the system is paying is that they're probably paving the ground for some structural changes. And for that, you need to have monolithic control over all instruments of power and also no opposition. 
Last year, Iran had a parliamentary election, which was equally constrained, and uh, it resulted in a landslide victory for the hardliners in the lowest turnout in the history of the Islamic Republic. And this time, too, I think the system cares more about the outcome than the uh, turnout. Uh, And so most likely uh, it wants to get a pliant, tested, loyal president who will not oppose structural changes, including, for instance, uh, changing the system from a presidential to a parliamentary one, and maybe even uh, changing the structure of the supreme leadership, changing it from a one-man show into a council uh, that would allow Khamenei's existing office, which includes his son, to still be the power behind the veil through divide and rule. So in some ways it is, it may be about the succession, even if it's not, you know, empowering Raisi to become the next supreme leader. Exactly. It, it is really about what comes after Ayatollah Khamenei. You know, this is a man who came to power in 1989 as an underdog and has outwitted and outweighted everyone in the Islamic Republic. And I really doubt that he does not have a, a plan uh, for the future of the system after him his legacy, and also plans to protect his family. And I think this election is mostly about that. So, Ali, beyond this sort of question of succession, could we talk a little bit about about voting dynamics? And in particular, I I wanted to ask you about the women's vote in Iran. There's been a lot of coverage of this one candidate's wife who's been campaigning. I don't know if that's a cliche, but but how much do the the presidential candidates, how much do they bid for women's votes? You know, how much do they try to mobilise women's turnout? Uh, That's an interesting question. You see the rupture between the state and the society here. The Guardian Council disqualified all the 40 women who had signed up as candidates for the presidential elections. And so that gives you a clear sense of how the state views women's role in Iranian politics. Uh, But in the society, candidates actually compete with one another to demonstrate that they have a gender balanced approach and they care about uh, the fate of Iranian women. The more moderate candidate, uh, centrist Hemati, who is the former uh, governor of the central bank, he uh, used his wife as representative to go to state television with a relatively loose hijab to uh, advocate uh, for her husband. But even hardline candidates uh, have promised to bring to their cabinet uh, a lot of women. This clearly demonstrates that the society cares much more about the role of women in the society and politics than the state does. So last year you had the parliamentary elections in which hardliners did very well. Now it looks like we're going to have a president in Iran who himself is, uh, you know, quite hardline, very conservative. I mean, how much difference does this make for the way people can live their daily lives in, in the Islamic Republic? So look, there is a a widespread sense of hopelessness within the Iranian population. Current surveys demonstrate that turnout rate is probably going to be extremely low, probably lowest in the history of the Islamic Republic's presidential elections. I have to say that in parallel to presidential elections, there are city council elections that are taking place. And in rural areas, those elections really matter for people because it really affects their daily lives. So that will help boost uh, some of the numbers. And so we'll have to see what the uh, final outcome is. But, you know, at the end of the day, what is expected, if I'm correct in my analysis, that part of the bigger picture grand strategy for the deep state here is consolidation of power in the run-up to succession. I think one of the requirements of that is to make sure that there is no internal dissent. 
so one thing that we can expect in the coming years is probably uh, more repression at home. Given the amount of frustration in the Iranian society, uh, it is possible that we would see protests in the coming months, and I think those will be violently suppressed by the incoming administration in order, again, to make sure there is no internal opposition to the plans that the system has in mind for its long-term survival. So Ali, let me turn us now to the question of foreign policy and what I imagine looms largest, the question of the nuclear negotiations with the United States. Can you tell us a bit about where we are? What is the status of the nuclear talks right now? So as we speak, the sixth round of these negotiations are taking place in Vienna, and they're making slow progress, but they're still far away on some of the core issues. You know, the, the Iranian view is what the U.S. is offering them, the U.S. which is responsible for the sorry state that the nuclear deal is in because of its withdrawal from the agreement in 2018, is not a mea culpa, is not compensation of Iran for all the damages that it has been inflicted upon as a result of U.S. sanctions. But uh, it's basically less in terms of sanctions relief because the U.S. is seeking to keep some of the sanctions that the Trump administration imposed and uh, the Biden administration believes are not inconsistent with uh, the JCPOA. And is asking Iran to do more on nuclear concessions because Uh, Iran has made some nuclear advancements, especially through research and development, which uh, requires the program to be rolled back even further than it was in 2015 in order to get back to the standards of the nuclear deal, the most important among them, the breakout time, which is the amount of time that is needed to enrich enough fissile material for one nuclear weapon. The JCPOA brought that up to 12 months. It is currently around two months and it's shrinking uh, by the day. Now, on the U.S. side, uh, their problem is uh, that Iran is reluctant to do more than it had done in the JCPOA in terms of nuclear concessions. It uh, expects the U.S. to lift all the sanctions, regardless of the justification. It cannot sell uh, removing uh, sanctions that are justified, for instance, on violators of human rights in Iran, including Ayatollah Raisi here in Washington, given congressional opposition. And it cannot really respond to an Iranian request of providing guarantees uh, that the U.S. will no longer renege on its commitment. So that's why uh, we are stuck. And uh, there are also differences in terms of sequencing of each steps. Uh, The Iranians expect the U.S. to take all the steps first and provide Iran with sanctions relief, provide Iran with an opportunity to verify that sanctions relief is actually effective, uh, and only then take steps to roll back its nuclear program, which is obviously a model that is entirely unacceptable to the United States. And then the question of verification of sanctions relief is also another challenge because uh, there is the International Atomic Energy Agency, a neutral international organization that is in charge of verifying Iran's compliance with the deal. Uh, But there is no international referee uh, that can verify uh, sanctions relief. Uh, And so uh, that's also a very difficult issue to to deal with. But all in all, if uh, talks make good progress, I still think they would be able to bridge these gaps and finalize a roadmap for returning to mutual compliance before President Rouhani leaves office in August. And I think that's also what the deep state in Iran wants. Because this way, Raisi can come in with a clean slate. Uh, He can blame Rouhani for any shortcomings of the roadmap, but he can obviously benefit from the economic dividends of sanctions relief. So, Ali, tell me if this is right, but in essence, the Iranians and the US are meeting in Vienna. They're still not meeting directly. They're sort of involved in this 
uh, shuttle diplomacy with the Europeans and others sort of going back and forth between them. But they're meeting in Vienna this week and next week. They still don't agree on what side actually has to do to get back to compliance with the JCPOA, with the nuclear deal. But even once they agree on that, they still need to agree on the sequencing, sort of who does what, when, which, as you say, is a, is a challenge. And then they also need to agree on sort of verification. And as, as you say, it's difficult to verify the sanctions relief. So, I mean, isn't it true that they haven't actually come very far yet and there's still sort of quite a long way to go? You know, with political will and flexibility on both sides, none of these obstacles are insurmountable, in my view. Uh, there are technical solutions to, to most of these problems. And on the question of sequencing, I think the U.S. has uh, enough flexibility to figure out a way that could be mutually acceptable. You know, if both sides accept the reality uh, that status quo ante is not entirely restorable, meaning that Iran would not get as much of the benefits that uh, it was promised to in 2015. And the U.S. would also not get the one-year breakout time. But, but the alternatives to restoring the agreement are that much less attractive for both sides. You know, living with a, a nuclear uh, program in Iran that is growing exponentially or living under sanctions uh, for the Iranians, uh, then I think they are able to really bridge the gap in the next few weeks. It will probably take this round and maybe another round to finalize the list of measures that each side would have to take to come back into compliance, and one or two rounds to discuss sequencing and verification. And President Rouhani is leaving office in, on August 3rd, uh, and so there is still time. Implementation can start under Rouhani and get done uh, by Raisi. Raisi has already said that he's committed to the JCPOA. But the problem is, if the deal is not restored by, uh, by, by inauguration of, uh, of Raisi, then I think the, the risk is, from a technical perspective, Iran has made so much uh, advancements uh, that are, uh, those are not really reversible. And so getting back to the constraints and to the monitoring of the JCPOA uh, would be insufficient to ensuring that Iran's nuclear program would remain fully peaceful. And so there is a need to negotiate a new deal. There's another element here, which is that there is an agreement with the IAEA uh, that has lost some of its access to Iran's nuclear facilities as a result of uh, this current standoff over the JCPOA, uh, that its cameras are still working in nuclear facilities it no longer has access to. But that agreement also comes to an end less than a week after the elections. And if it's not extended, uh, the IAEA would be flying blind. And that's a major challenge, obviously, for verification. So we have a nuclear program that is growing exponentially and uh, is not uh, being verified. And Ali, as you say, Iran's program is developing quite fast, right? It's breakout time. The time it would take to develop a bomb has, has, has got much shorter, uh, partly due to kind of these much more powerful centrifuges. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, I mean, the, the most important concern is Iran's work on advanced centrifuges, uh, because that provides Iran with the kind of knowledge uh, that is really uh, irreversible. There are three elements that go into calculation of a breakout time. One is the sophistication of centrifuges. Second is the number of centrifuges. And third is the size of enriched material stockpile. Now, Iran is enriching to very high levels, 20% uh, and 60%. That is really just a, uh, a step away from weapon-grade uranium. Um, and now has uh, these advanced centrifuges that are at times 50 times more powerful uh, than uh, Iran's first-generation centrifuges uh, that were the workforce of the, J of, of the JCPOA uh, agreement. 
And so that uh, would shrink Iran's breakout time in ways that uh, Iran, the JCPOA's constraints will, will be insufficient. Uh, and so um, I think that's why if there is a, a, a deal is not uh, reached to restore the agreement in the next two months, uh, we'll probably reach a zone of no return uh, for Iran's nuclear uh, program. So can you tell us a little bit more, what do you see happening if there is a failure to come to some kind of an agreement? So if there is no deal by August, I doubt that uh, the incoming uh, President Raisi uh, would be willing to make the compromises that even the lame duck Rouhani administration was reluctant to do right out of the gate. Uh, It probably wants to further strengthen its hand. Uh, before it comes back to a negotiating table. Uh, and that means uh, that we will go through a, another nuclear escalation before uh, there's a possibility of talks. And usually by that point, both sides have further entrenched their positions. And if they want to start from scratch negotiating a new deal, that is going to take a very long time. That also means that Iran would remain under sanctions, uh, which uh, is uh, obviously bad news uh, for the Iranian people. Uh, but also it's bad news for the region because the Iranians who are uh, now actively pushing back against U.S. Uh, uh, interest in the region would try to make sure that they impose a cost on continued maximum pressure strategy, this time under the Biden administration. But they will make sure that U.S. in uh, Iraq would suffer uh, casualties, if not fatalities, with uh, continued rocket attacks uh, from Shia militias and drone attacks. You might see resumed attacks on shipping in the Persian Gulf and on oil infrastructure in Saudi Arabia and uh, maybe even the UAE. You might even see uh, exacerbation of the conflict in Yemen. Uh, And so a lot of the regional dynamics uh, are now uh, some ways linked uh, to the fate of the JCPOA. Ali, let's imagine a, a better scenario. Let's imagine that the US and Iran can get back to the to the nuclear deal or something close to it. One of the things that US officials have spoken about is getting what they call a follow-up deal, in their words, stronger and longer. How do you see prospects of that happening? The preference and the right way uh, of tackling these negotiations is to use the JCPOA as a base because that would put Iran's nuclear program back in a box and under rigorous monitoring by the IEA, buying time for both sides to negotiate a better for better kind of arrangement. It is obvious that uh, I think the experience of the past few years have clearly demonstrated that the JCPOA is unstable and is unsatisfactory to both sides. The U.S. is obviously unhappy about the fact that some of the limits in the deal will expire uh, in 2023, and that would be under President Biden's watch as he starts uh, the campaign for his second term uh, or the first term of his successor. And uh, the Iranians were unhappy with the amount of sanctions relief they received even in 2016. So I think both sides uh, would benefit from a more for more arrangement if it's uh, basically framed in that way. Counterintuitively, the consolidation of hardliners uh, and their control of all levers of power in Iran could potentially also be good news for this, uh, because one thing that had bugged down the Rouhani administration and the nuclear negotiations uh, was the mistrust of the deep state towards the Rouhani negotiators uh, and also uh, infighting uh, in terms of who's going to reap the political dividends of dealing with the West. Uh, those two issues will be out of the window in a Raisi administration because it's the same faction 
who is in control. But having said this, let me also add that hardliners in Iran, like elsewhere, are often better at delivering, uh, but worse at negotiating. Uh, so we'll have to see uh, if Raisi brings to power uh, a foreign minister who is at least a, a relative moderate, especially because he would be, uh, given his human rights uh, track record, uh, quite radioactive. Uh, and I don't think he would be the right face of uh, the government to the outside world. Uh, but in the choice of the foreign minister, I think uh, it would be a litmus test for the preference of the Raisi administration about whether it wants to pursue a confrontational uh, foreign policy or a cooperative one. If you look back on when the U.S. was negotiating the original JCPOA back in 2015, there's a lot of resistance then, uh, as there is now, from Congress, from Republicans in particular, a lot of resistance at the time from Israel, from Gulf Arab powers. How do you compare the sort of domestic political environment in the U.S. and the international environment now compared with then in terms of the ease with which the U.S. can get back to a deal with Iran? Uh, look, uh, at the congressional level, there is still you know, equal amount of opposition that existed in uh, 2015 towards the original agreement. No Republican, if you remember, voted for the JCPOA and also some key Democrats refused to uh, vote in favor of it. And that's still the case. And there is uh, lobbying happening from part of Israel uh, behind the scenes. But it's not uh, the kind of public feud that we witnessed with Prime Minister Netanyahu coming to Washington and addressing a joint session of Congress. Uh, it's much more behind the scenes this time around. And then it's entirely different uh, compared to 2015 uh, when it gets to Saudi and Emirati uh, role. They were equally opposed uh, to the JCPOA as Israel was in 2015 and active in lobbying against it. Spent millions of dollars uh, in uh, campaigns, but uh, basically, and this time around, uh, they're completely silent. And I think the key reason here is that the maximum pressure strategy taught them an important lesson, that in any Iran-US confrontation, uh, they are basically in the crossfire and they will pay a bigger price than the United States. Let's move to the region. So first, can you tell us a bit uh, your view of the recent talks between Saudi Arabia and Iran? These talks in Baghdad, I think, are extremely positive because there hasn't been any direct uh, uh, diplomatic contact between Saudi Arabia and Iran since the Saudis cut off their diplomatic relations after their diplomatic facilities in Iran uh, were attacked by mob in, in January of 2016. But I think the talks are at this stage mostly exploratory. Um, the Saudis want to see if the Iranians can play a role in uh, de-escalating the conflict in, in Yemen and unfortunately, uh, I feel that the conflict uh, there is in a stage that uh, the Houthis are not easily persuaded uh, by Iran to change their military calculus. At the end of the day, the, the Houthis are not really an Iranian proxy, and there is a track record of them ignoring Iranian advice. Uh, we'll have to see. And, and then I also would say that the Saudis are probably also waiting to see what happens with the JCPOA. Uh, because as I said, in the absence of JCPOA, we'll have continued maximum pressure strategy, which probably makes it very difficult both for the Iranians to de-escalate tension with Saudi Arabia and for the Saudis uh, to believe that that's going to be the case. Uh, and so at this stage, uh, everything is linked back to the faith of the JCPOA. And how would you see Ali prospects for uh, some sort of deal that actually covers 
some of the stuff that the the Saudis and the Emiratis worry about, Iran's ballistic missiles, for example, or or Iran's alliances with non-state forces across the region that Iran portrays as its part of its own defense, but which are obviously a, you know, a huge concern to to some of the Arab Gulf powers. Um, so look, the Biden administration's initial plan was to come in office, restore the JCPOA, de-escalate the conflict in Yemen, and use these two steps as basically stepping stones towards uh, launching a regional dialogue process uh, that would tackle a lot of these, uh, uh, like Iran's ballistic missile program or support for proxies, as uh, regional issues or arms control agreements at the regional level uh, and not just singling out uh, the Iranian question. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, had said, and Jake Sullivan, the current national security advisor, had wrote about this last summer, uh, that the U.S. is not in a position to lead th- these negotiations, but it will be able to support them. Uh, indeed, the United Nations is quite interested uh, in launching uh, such a process. But I think the U.S. is uh, also waiting to see what happens with the JCPOA uh, because it thinks that probably it's unrealistic to imagine significant de-escalation in the Persian Gulf sub-region while the U.S. and Iran are basically at uh, daggers drawn. But I think this is a mistake. It would be the right thing to do is to at least start these dialogue processes at the regional level as soon as possible. I think the fact that the Saudis and the Iranians have now broken the ice and are talking to each other directly is a positive step. But the reality is, given the absence of any kind of inclusive engagement at the regional level, not just in the past four decades, but I would say ever, you really have to start from scratch. And these talks would take a very, very long time to produce concrete results. Uh, And so the earlier they begin, the better. And even in that context, I think maybe uh, they would be conducive and helpful to the nuclear negotiations as well, because it will help both sides understand uh, a a much more realistic vision of the JCPOA's restoration and its uh, implications. Remember that in 2016, when the nuclear deal was implemented, it really backfired on the region uh, because the Arab Gulf countries were concerned uh, that Iran was now unleashed and uh, would be able to basically project even more power throughout the region. Uh, and that's why I think regional de-escalation and restoration of the nuclear deal uh, should go hand in hand and should happen simultaneously and not sequentially. So Ali, what is your sense Uh, moving to a slightly bigger picture question of what a more peaceful region would look like for Iran or from Iran's perspective. And is that something that the Iranian state wants right now? Yeah, so this goes back to the first issue that we were discussing, which is about succession. Um, You know, the Iranians, I, I do believe that, you know, in this phase, in this transition to the next chapter in the history of the Islamic Republic, need stability. Uh, both internally uh, and externally. I think that implies that they would be willing to de-escalate tension with their neighbors as well. But what Iran wants at the end of the day is that it's recognized as a regional power. It does not want to be excluded from the region. Uh, I think the other side of this coin is that its neighbors also uh, don't want it to dominate the region. Uh, And uh, between those two positions, there is obviously a balance. And this sounds like a cliche, but, you know, the the Persian Gulf region uh, in many ways is similar to Europe, where you have some inherent asymmetries in terms of size of countries, uh, population, uh, historic depth of the state, uh, military capabilities. And at the end of the day, the only 
sustainable solution is a security architecture in which all of these states feel that they're uh, safe and secure. Now, that is an ideal that could not happen in the short run, but at least opening up channels of communication and having dialogue about that vision uh, in the short run could de-escalate tensions and in the longer run could actually bring about uh, the similar kind of uh, security and economic cooperation arrangements that exist in Europe. Ali, thanks so much for coming on. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Richard, what are your impressions of this uh, incredibly delicate time for Iran and for the negotiations? Yeah, you know, Naz, it's uh, it, it's sort of a nail biter, and you know, obviously, I don't mean the Iranian elections, but the the nuclear talks. The clock is, you know, is really ticking. As Ali made clear, there's there's just a lot riding on on the U.S. and Iran getting back to the JCPOA or, or or something like it. You know, obviously, that's not going to fix all the region's problems, as we saw when the nuclear deal first came into force six years ago. But but there is a chance this time around with the Saudis and the Iranians talking. With the lessons from the last time in mind, the sort of disastrous legacy of Trump's maximum pressure policy in mind, you know, Gulf Arab powers sort of having seen how that worked out, that maybe a return to the JCPOA could contribute towards the sort of regional diplomacy, the easing of tensions that Ali described. And certainly it's much more difficult to see that diplomacy going anywhere without the nuclear deal and better US-Iran relations. You can sort of imagine what would happen. Iran moving ahead with its nuclear development, Know, shorter breakout times, possibly lashing out in the region even more because of uh, you know the, the the sanctions, Israel threatening to take military action against the nuclear program, potentially sucking the U.S. in. So so yeah, I think there's there's really quite a lot riding on the next um, the next couple of months. Absolutely, Richard. And I think, uh, as always, as, and as Ali mentioned, of course, the interests and the needs of the Iranian people who are going through yet another COVID wave now and, and of course, are looking to those negotiations to hopefully provide some relief and an upturn in the economy. I also thought, separate from the, the JCPOA nuclear negotiations, something Ali mentioned about the challenge facing the system as it looks ahead to the next phase of the Islamic Republic. And the idea of, I really like how Ali painted this picture of how does Khamenei or how does the state think about creating a next leadership that can manage such a complex and notoriously complex governmental structure when this set of leaders who were linked to the revolution itself are gone. What does that look like? And how do you plan for that if you are at the sort of last phase of your own leadership as Khamenei is? And it, it strikes me that, um, as Ali suggested, this is a this is a real challenge facing the state is how does it create a system and a structure and a set of characters that are able to continue a sustainable Islamic Republic moving forward. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can see more of our work on Iran, on everything else we cover, uh, on our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. And thank you, of course to our listeners please do leave us a question a comment a rating a review 
and we hope you'll join us again next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.